a special presentation of Pact Digital Dramaturgy. Welcome back to the Tuttle Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz, and this time I have a special presentation of a forum held by PACT, the Professional Association of Canadian Theatres, and their Artistic Practice Committee. As will be revealed, this conversation results out of a PACT desire to support the artistic development of their membership, and today, specifically, the art of digital dramaturgy in theatre. In this session, Ardeth Boxel, the Artistic Director from Theatre Projects Manitoba and a member of the Artistic Practice Committee, welcomed designer Beth Cates and the Artistic Director of the Blythe Festival, Gil Garrett, to talk about their collaboration on digital design. Their conversation is moderated by director, writer, and educator Heather Davies. This conversation took place over teleconference. I wanted to thank Beth for giving me the heads up so I was able to join the call and, with everyone's permission, record it and share it with you. To support this and future conversations with fascinating theatre designers, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. And just a quick note, I mentioned last time in my interview with Andrea Lundy that we would be putting together another conversation about taxes, uh, but I was mistaken. Now, we do have several Bellows conversations about taxes available at thetitleblock.com, but our next conversation was a surprisingly interesting one about cordial email communications. Watch out for that soon. Now, we join Jeremy Boomer Stacy from the PACT office, who welcomes everyone to the discussion about digital dramaturgy. Okay, so I have uh, two minutes after one uh, Eastern. This is Boomer in the PACT office. Thanks, everybody, for joining us, especially our special guests, um, Beth Cates and Gil Garrett. Um, uh, I'm just going to do a really quick run-through to make sure that I've got everyone who I think is here, and then I'm going to pass it over to Ardeth, who's the chair of the Artistic Practice Committee. Uh, so I have Ardeth, I have Heather Broughton, um, Cecilia, oh no, don't have Cecilia yet, uh, Craig Alfredson, uh, Carson Natras, Tessa Mandel, Renata Pohl, uh, Richie Wilcox, Shauna Jones, uh, Zach from the PACT office, Marette from the PACT office, Michael Cruz, and uh, Heather Davies. Uh, did, wow. I, did I miss anybody? Amazing. So we have a couple other people who have signed up, so we might hear someone beep in. But otherwise, um, Artis, I'm going to pass it over to you to get us going. Great, thanks. Um, welcome everyone and thank you for joining us for this exciting peer-to-peer session. Um, I'm the Artistic Director at Theatre Projects Manitoba and as a member of the board at PACT, I chair this committee, the Artistic Practice Committee, um, and I'm just so grateful that you all um, are so engaged and on this call today. Um, the idea for this session was inspired by the committee's desire to explore new ideas and conversations around digital practice in the theater and uh, to provide a platform for, for packed folks, for you folks to um, gear your professional development energies towards, you know, what I think is really exciting and 
for myself, still a slightly mysterious uh, uh, way of working. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm heading to the future or something. <laughs> being dragged into the future. Right <laughs> uh, and so um, one of our committee members, uh, Hannah Davies, who's here today, had a brilliant suggestion that fired us all up, and, and that brings us here. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Heather for uh, introductions to our guests and to the session. Heather. Great. Hi, everybody. So um, I'm just going to say off the top, just in terms of time today, I have to um, exit gracefully just before 2 o'clock. I'm, I'm uh, just in um, uh, tacking at the moment. So um, this is my lunch break. So I have to go back and keep tacking at 2. Um, so uh, I'm delighted that we're having the conversation. It's, it's, it's great. So today we have uh, Gil Garrett. I'll speak briefly. And Gil, please feel free to fill in if you feel I've left anything out. So Gil, um, Artistic Director at the Blythe Festival, has had a, a fantastic and long association with, with Blythe. Um, actor, writer, uh, dramaturg, um, theater maker extraordinaire, and uh, active voice in the Canadian theater ecology. Uh, and Beth Cates, uh, who has, is a designer, sets, lighting, uh, projection design and uh, and now uh, expanding into the realm of digital dramaturg. So she's an award-winning uh, lighting projection set and costume designer and who started working in rock and roll at the age of 14. So, uh, <laughs> and has carried on working in, in numerous uh, companies across the country, uh, Shaw, Blythe, uh, the, the list is, is long. So um, I'll pause there if I may. Beth, do you want to add anything right now? Uh, no, that's great. Okay, great. So um, we've exchanged a couple of um, emails back and forth talking about um, what we'll, we'll speak about with today. Just to, to say that uh, part of the reason I wanted to suggest this as a, as a talking point for um, our artistic process and development is that uh, Beth, for me, is one of the leading voices in making this shift from projection design into the digital dramaturgy, and I've been a great admirer of her work and a great admirer of the relationship between Gil and, and Beth uh, in um, being a member of the community in southwestern Ontario. I do apologize if you're getting a lot of background I'm in a lively environment today. So I just start with, I think, two things, which will kind of feel like we're starting in the middle and we might loop back a little bit, and then we'll kind of begin in the present and then go forward, I think. But uh, to begin with, I just wanted to talk a little bit um, about the, the compelling reasons of making this shift for you, Beth, of describing yourself, the difference between describing yourself as a projection designer or a, a digital designer, and what the shift has been for you um, with moving into the process of describing yourself as a digital dramaturg or digital dramaturgy and what that uh, compelling reasons were for that. Sure. Um, I think, so I've been involved with an enormous number of new, new work uh, and developing new work. And for me, at least, my involvement as a designer in those developments has, has always been 
more than just a designer. And, and a lot of those shows are a couple of key shows where at the beginning of including digital content and, and using, <clears throat> excuse me, projection heavily. Oh. And, and it's, it's been in the last few years and, and we'll talk about the last Donnelly standing, which is kind oh. of the, the catalyst to, to all of this. Um, but it's been in the last few years of the, some of the projects that I've worked on where it's my involvement has seen uh, for me has felt uh, way more than quote unquote just a designer like it's gotten into with projection in particular it's gotten into the nuts and bolts of storytelling and because the projected image and what we have access to with the projected image um, uh, can really expand the capabilities of storytelling. Um, that's been part of me as an artist trying to claim some of that space and also trying to push for uh, this this uh, conversation and this vocabulary to develop. So it's been a, a combo of, of all of that. Great. Great. Thank you. So um, two of the pieces I think we'll talk about specifically today are um, The Last Donnelly Standing, um, uh, which is uh, at Blythe, and also um, uh, a Lombardo. Um, Gil, can you just remind us, please, what the whole title of the Lombardo piece is? <laughs> yes, it was uh, Mr. New Year's Eve, A Night with Guy Lombardo. By there we are. Scott. Great. Thank you. Um, where I'd like to go next is uh, just talking about some of the, uh, I guess for, for you, Gil, uh, talking about the difference from your perspective of the role of the projection designer or a video designer and how that shifted for you uh, in parallel with, uh, with Beth or in, uh, in parallel with the experience. Of, so I wonder if you could just talk from your point of view about the difference between those two things in terms of the relationship. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you, Heather. Um, uh, well, well, there's m multiple things. Um, I guess the place where I would begin really is in terms of the, the relationship to um, uh, projection into the digital world with regard to uh, one specific show that happened here in my very first season, which was um, uh, the first time that Beth also worked at Blythe, was a, a show that we did here in 2015 um, called Seeds. And it was our own production of the show that premiered, the Crows Theatre premiered, Annabelle Sutar's play um, Seeds which is essentially about uh, the legal battle between Percy Schmeiser and, the, um, and, and what was then Monsanto Corporation. Uh, and really for me, what, what began as, as the, the clinching reason to have Beth in, like I knew that the show had previously had some element of, of projection as part of uh, the original production. Uh, and one of the things that really mattered to me with that particular play was uh, we have a predominantly um, uh, you know, farm-based audience, whether they are directly ag workers or whether they are uh, people who have grown up on farms. And the relationship to farms in Blood is, is, is quite uh, intense. And wanting to find a way that we could present a, a contemporary farmer's story on stage that actually did present it in a way that was... Um, 
on the vanguard of technology because the reality is that's where farmers live. Farmers live on the vanguard of technology. They have to um, or they go under. And the reality of contemporary farming in Canada is that you have to be, um, uh, you know, uh, a savvy politician as well as um, uh, an experienced economist and a well-researched scientist. And we wanted to make the production as slick and innovative and contemporary as we could. And so uh, Kim Collier directed the show, um, but we brought uh, Beth on board early on um, to kind of go, okay, how can we how can we do this? And to be fair to um, Blythe Festival at the time, um, we did own a projector. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a 4K projector. Um, yeah, I yeah. think it only weighed about uh, 84 pounds. And, um, uh, and it had a little box with chains that hang, hung from underneath the balcony. Um, and over the course, obviously, of developing what that show would become, uh, it became a show with uh, four separate mapped projectors across the stage as well as some live video that was happening um, as part of the production too and 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 it was essential to um, uh, to what that play became. And coming out of that experience, Beth and I had had a lot of conversation about um, about video and about the the role of the of the designer uh, in generating that massive amount of, of content. It was, it was a visually um, saturated production. Uh, and that led into um, us beginning a collaboration on this show called The Last Donnelly Standing. Um, and to speak to that just a tiny bit, um, this show yeah. is collective creation. So uh, I, it, was, it began as a piece that uh, Paul Thompson and myself um, had been talking about for some time and was really about picking up a piece of a, there was an epic show that Paul and I had uh, been core creators of uh, here in Blythe called The Outdoor Donnellys um, that was a massive show with horses and everything outside and uh, we, there was a tiny vignette that was part of that show that was about the life of, of Robert Donnelly, who was um, one of the survivors of the massacre, uh, second youngest brother, uh, youngest after the massacre. And he, um, it was really about his, his life after the, uh, well, leading up to the massacre, but then his life afterwards, which is quite an extraordinary story. Um, and to give a tiny pricey of it, really, Robert, uh, incredibly after the massacre happened, uh, rather than leave town, he actually bought a bar on Main Street in Lucan and opened this bar. Um, and so he refused to leave town, really, and, and made himself a staple of the community. Uh, even after this mob of uh, local people had killed his family in cold blood. Uh, so pretty compelling story. Um, but then Paul and I had started down this road, and then um, Beth had been brought on initially as a designer uh, for the show. But then as conversations kind of began, Began, um, and we started doing a bunch of research, it became very clear that uh, Beth's role would be far beyond um, uh, simply the, the designer role. And I realize I'm monopolizing the preamble a little bit here, Beth. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, 
Like, we just started actually inviting Beth to come on these uh, uh, research trips with us because um, we were trying to go out and uh, actually physically make our way. I mean, both in terms of we went, you know, to the Donnelly Homestead and walked from the place where the uh, vigilantes had killed, I mean, had, had planned the murder uh, to the Donnelly Homestead, uh, but we, we walked it on the anniversary of the walk in the middle of the night. And, um, and we did these sorts of things that Paul and I were doing already, and we had invited Beth to come and be a part of it. It became very apparent that what we were doing was really including Beth in the generative process of creating the show and that we were going far beyond um, what would be a traditional designer's role. Right. And so then and that opened up the idea of actually making Beth a core collaborator on it. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, like, and sorry to end, end game a little bit here. Um, so would you, and, and this is hopefully an open question rather than a yes or no, but do you feel that this shift into Beth being the core collaborator is at the kernel or the heart of this difference between the um, digital designer versus the dramaturgical component to the role? Hmm. Uh, yeah, yes, I suppose. I, I suppose in a lot of ways I do. In, in so far as, like, um, I had been searching for a way to better include Beth in what um, Last Donnelly was. So part of it was actually about credit, was about saying, okay, this is not just a design role, you're actually a core collaborator. But then that also meant um, quite practically also putting our money where our mouth was, was saying, um, you are now a part of the core collective that is creating this thing, Uh, the core collective being myself and Paul at that point. And so the three of us then also did really pragmatic things like split the royalties three ways as we began to go, this is the reality of, of how this show is being built. Um, we are a core company. We're, we're creating this thing together. We each uh, you know, are responsible for a piece, but also each of us own a piece of this thing. And, and for this designer um, to have done this tremendous amount of, of, of work, um, it needs to be recognized. Okay. But- Oh, there was a big intake of breath. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, and I think that was in part, like, again, on the pragmatic side, that was that was a key thing that happens to be included in that way because there are other shows that I have had very, very, very similar roles on where that was never acknowledged um, and yet was key to the to what the show became was was my contribution and so that shift just in just in approach and just in thinking and acknowledgement is really was really important um, well yeah and to that, that came philosophically that became a driver of the aesthetic too right like Insofar as uh, to speak to what that show was for people on the call who are not familiar, uh, Last Donnelly Standing, while it was uh, based on this um, you know, very vivid history, the show itself was entirely improvised. Um, and to this day, it's never been written down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, and, and, and that's, t- I'm going to interrupt. It was yeah, improvised, both performance and design. So 
the, the, the visuals, the lighting, and the set was improvised every night. Yeah. So the the, like the 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 video elements of it essentially like as Beth and I and Paul uncovered this this story and pieces kept coming up and and um, ideas and images kept coming up. Then we kept also tangibly searching for um, pieces of of well not only like like for instance there was a section of the play that was about. Um, uh, William Blake and the relationship between um, the lamb and the and the tiger uh, from his uh, uh, songs of innocence and experience uh, because he was a contemporary of of Donnelly and w- what was that uh, he certainly was aware of these poems yeah and they played a role in the piece but then we were going okay so how can we use that illuminated manuscript in some way in this work and so we would search for these things but then it at the same time, it was also driven the other way insofar as sometimes Beth would go and find a remarkable piece of footage, like all that Lumiere Brothers stuff of the friggin' train uh, at the, uh, mm-hmm. there, and we would then go backwards where pieces of, of film that had been uncovered would in turn generate text and performance. Right. And so you basically walked into that show every night with a massive bank of images and pieces of film. And mm-hmm. we had no set. There was a vague trajectory that we adhered to um, that was, a, 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 I would say more accurately, there was a chronology. We knew the play began at the beginning of his life and ended at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and beyond that, it, it was in flux, and that too all came from how we 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 moved through all those journeys. So those walks and trips to to two hundred year old forges, and all that time, the only thing that I had been charged with from from Paul was to to witness. And so in my witnessing, I I started creating a visual record because we would go to these places, and Gil would do these epic improvisations and I would like we never audio recorded them that, that you don't do that with Paul and so I, I just I took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures of everything we did um, and those pictures ended up becoming part of the life of the show and we then went on these journeys through the pictures and it was in one of those journeys where I had also been tasked with uh, by Paul to go find every picture I'd ever wished I'd taken from, you know, the great world of photography and and bring those into a room. And, and we ended up essentially improvising with those images, which was the day that Paul turned around and said, like, you've made a new way to make theater. This is a different way into imagery. This is is really compelling. Um, we would sometimes have, because, uh, I mean, all of these trips and research pieces were really like writing exercises. And, and yes, there would be, like, times where we would be, you know, at, uh, 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 I would be using a, a forge at somebody's farm that um, has been preserved that's still the way the farm was in, in 18. And 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 as spontaneously out of the act of pounding the steel that day, um, an improv would begin, and we would work from uh, and and you know uh, ideas and images and and 
pieces of ephemeral text would sort of bubble in and out, um, and we would hope the right. best ideas held somewhere because um, nobody was writing them down. Um, <laughs> right. nope. At the same time, I'm, I'm we would have gonna... other sessions or we would set up like um, – you know, uh, we put a, a whole bunch of tables together and we would lay out, uh, you know, terrible prints of a hundred photographs that we had identified as important to the show, uh, photographs or paintings, a bunch of different uh, uh, things, and we would lay them all out on a table. And then Beth and I and Paul would take turns putting them in a random, or not in a random, but, uh, setting an order without conversation without explaining why we were putting it in those orders so that we would cohesively develop our own visual language together, um, each of us having set a different order and then having to reflect on the order that the other has set. Right. Okay, I'm going to just pause you there. I love all of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is a fantastic level of detail, and and it's really wonderful to have this window into this very rich and and uh, extensive uh, creative process in developing this new work. And and having seen it, I can attest to the the level of excitement in the space with regard to the audience and the um, improvisatory nature, the improvisational nature of the of the piece as well. Um, which was very exciting in performance. So I, I feel like uh, if I, I'm just going to throw this down on the table for the Artistic Practice Committee, I feel like we could take this kind of conversation much further, and I would love to see if there's a way if we can extend it into uh, a live situation so that we could you know, have a bit more of a lecture demo thing going on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as something to explore. But I, I'm just going to leap ahead, if I may, because I would love to give people the opportunity to just um, ask questions. Just a little bit about then, what were the differences or, or the similarities? What did you carry forward then or change in your process going into working on the piece about Lombardo, which was uh, summer of 2017? Um, you start. <laughs> I'll start. Okay. Uh, the the one of the main differences with Lombardo too was that there was a script. Um, there was a script that we started with, and and basically, um, you know, uh, then was. Uh, pulled apart and reorganized as you do in the process of working with a script and I was brought in pretty early, not in the life of the script, which had been floating around for many, many, many years, but um, uh, was brought in early in in our process and uh, got to spend time with the script and then we essentially took the same principles that we had applied with Donnelly um, and went into a room. It was just Gil and I went into the rehearsal hall in Blythe and based on what we knew about Guy Lombardo and uh, what we knew about what was in the script and um, knowing that we had almost a hundred years of history to encapsulate in a, you know, 90 minute show. um, We just started playing in a similar way, but we had no performers. Um, So it was really about looking at things and looking at image in space at scale and what parts of the story could we tell through imagery um, 
an imagery manifesting on stage, which is very different from watching a film. Um, how could we approach that? And what, what looked great? What felt right for Lombardo? What, this was also the show that opened the new uh, renovated theater of Blythe. So it was also about celebration, which is what Lombardo himself was all about. Um, so it was, that, was, that was how we began digging into it. Yeah, I mean, it was hugely celebratory. There was, there, there was an actual balloon drop. <laughs> it wasn't even a projection. Those were actual balloons. There were actual balloons, um, yep. That fell on the actual audience. And, um, and 900 meters of gold fabric. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, like, multiple things there, like, in terms of the, um, and one of the reasons why I was insistent with that piece in particular that we name uh, you, Beth, as the um, digital dramaturg on that show was also that there were elements of the story of Lombardo and, and of the cross-section of his life in the 20th century, which I felt were critical to the show that were um, uh, very, uh, they were essentially inarticulable for the playwright in some, in, in some respects. There were things like uh, the end of the first act is really the end of the Second World War, and we do uh, have the bombing of Hiroshima. Uh, that is, it, it, there is no real way to tell the story of what it is to to have been, you know, a musician at the peak of of North American society um, when that event occurred, and it was essential that we somehow represent it in the show, and yet. You know, and and uh, Dave Scott, who wrote the play, I mean, to his credit, he you know had had written some um, some pieces, some monologues, some story, had like gone back through, and and curiously, you know, Guy Lombardo's own autobiography, he leaves out um, you know the wars almost in their entirety, and we felt it had to be a part of the show, and the best way to address it seemed to be to um, to go this video root and to have it be um, part of this um, uh, huge visual uh, that was in the show that was a, a piece of, of actual film footage from the dropping of the bomb and we did it in such a way too that the performers themselves on stage um, or maybe better to say the characters themselves on stage uh, left the action of the moment they were in to turn and watch the dropping of the bomb, uh, which in a way became so constitutive of what that scene was that I did really feel it. it, it it's just one example of where we crossed the line from uh, it simply being um, a, a designer uh, interpreting a moment to it being a dramaturgical act unto itself that actually spoke beyond the role of the designer into something that was more generative of content, which is not in any way to say that designers aren't constantly generating content, because I think that that's 100% true. It's just that in this particular instance, uh, it for me felt like it was at least equivalent to what the playwright's words were doing. Right. So just then going back to that question, which I think we've now, feels like we've given voice to, 
uh, with the, the uh, expanding the, the sense of the core collaborator. So then would you say that it's this um, sense that the, the content that's been generated visually is doing at least the equivalent in the space of the text itself? Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, at the best of times, um, it, it has been uh, indistinguishable, and certainly that's what we went for in, in in last Donnelly Standing. I think we were were maybe a little bit more successful even than we were with with Lombardo. Though I would say there were moments where they were woven in that same way, like the mm-hmm. boat race. How about you, Bass? What would you say? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think um, uh, I think, and I think design in general has that potential. There's something, and it's something that I'm still grappling with, right? And as I, uh, part of my bio now should state that I'm doing a master's degree at the University of Calgary, and so these are some of the questions that I'm actually trying to deal with and trying to figure out what what is setting apart digital design from other design forms that that integrate it in this way because all design tells story there's no question and and all designers are are storytellers but there's there's something about the way that digital can be can be integrated and immersed into a show that gives it access to a a different kind of storytelling than an extraordinary set or an evocative lighting design there. Um, and this has always been part of my approach, like from, from rock and roll. And it might be because of rock and roll that this is why I'm here. Um, because in rock and roll, lighting tells story. That's, that's what you do. And, um, so this has always been part of my practice, but it's, it seems to have taken on a, a greater life with this, uh, moving into, into, examining what the dramaturgy of, of digital design is. Yeah. So it's this digital media, digital media as a storyteller seems to be really what I'm getting a sense of if I were you know, to mm-hmm. try and point at it or, you know, or, or declare, declare it in the space. So it, it sounds as though your, uh, your vocabulary and your process really moved on by leaps and bounds uh, from the Donnelly's piece into the Lombardo piece. And, and you started to mention one of the differences being that you started with a script. Um, so can I maybe just ask you uh, to just unpack that a little bit more? If we were talking about... For example, with seeds, going back to that perhaps, which was um, uh, had already been produced, um, is a, you know, or working with a published text, mm-hmm. which had had many productions previously. Could you describe where the similarities or differences would be in your process with regard to that, and how much about that is your relationship with the director in the space? Um, yeah, no, it's a great question. I I think the. I mean, my my approach is is always the same, or at least I'll start from that same place. So, in trying to figure out what the what is what is the play actually trying to say, what what is the life of the play? Um, with seeds, it was, and Gil spoke to this a bit. Um, it was very much about where we 
were, that we were in Huron County, that we were surrounded by farmland and that we weren't going to, there's also a truth to it too, because we weren't going to be able to fool any farmer. Um, if, if I brought the wrong thing into the life of the play there, uh, whether it was the wrong plant or the wrong kind of landscape, um, people were going to know, and that was going to affect how they were watching that play. Um, and, it, and it's also this familiarity with their own landscape. So, um, so in terms of taking an existing text, um, for me with that one, uh, it, it wasn't about breaking it down, going through the script and going, okay, we're in place X and we're in place Y and we're in place Z. Um, it was really about trying to find, um, find what the, uh, the ephemeral life of that, that piece was and, and how to make it real and how to bring, how to bring the land into the theater. Um, and so we, I, I just spent a lot of time in the theater looking right. at stuff. Um, yeah. And that was an incredibly, Gilly's the word, saturated, uh, deeply saturated show. There were hundreds of cues and there was image everywhere and there was text and there was trying to bring all the things that the playwright too, because it's a verbatim text, so that the playwright had like jammed into this play we had to find our way through a convoluted legal legalese and and a legal story and a human story and a land story and um so the approach was really actually quite wide ranging um in that way it was pretty epic um and uh and so so it was slightly different than uh, Lombardo too, because it was such an existing text. Um, and we didn't reference like in the development of it too. And that was my first time working with Kim. So uh, our vocabulary had to be developed as we were moving through the show. Right. Um, and, and that's a really, that's a, that can be a really tricky and challenging thing right. too especially when you when it comes to uh projection where often until you see it in the space you you don't know you can make you know i've built three four hundred page storyboards for shows and you still until you start to see it the actual pixels manifest on stage with the actual actors and the actual words it can be very difficult to to know what you're doing but so that was all part of it. It was taking into place the place where we were and developing that, that language with, with Kim. And I would say there's another important distinction there, too. With, with, um, with Seeds, uh, while it was this extensive and, and quite massive design, um, it, the script never changed as a result of what the... Uh, projections were like they were, they were, we didn 't go back and revise as a result of it, whereas with Lombardo, there were elements where we would go, okay, this is how this scene will be represented, so the scenes would be in some ways adapted sometimes um, 
because of, of the, what the projected offering was. I mean, I'm thinking about things. There was a scene that took place um, uh, in Chicago uh, in the Al Capone days, and the Lombardo brothers are playing uh, in this bar, and there's a shootout in the bar. And we had spent a lot of time trying to figure it out, uh, how we were going to present this thing, and had initially even intended to have a performer come on with a gun and fire this gun and all this stuff. And then somewhere in the, actually into the rehearsal period, we then realized this was going to be more effective if we actually took the gun out of the hands of the performer and put the assassin, um, you know, larger than life on the screen and made it this huge legend legendary moment. Uh, And in that way, the script was then adapted uh, because of what the offering was from the, from, from what we were doing with projection instead. And in that way, I think the dramaturgy was even, not to say that, and I think it's really true and fair that, I mean, all design has a dramaturgical impact. Uh, If it didn't, we wouldn't, we'd all be doing, you know, without any, with any, without any sets or costumes or anything. I mean, of course they have impact. Um, It's just that there were also places where I feel like some of the work we have been doing recently um, uh, has, has stepped even further. Um, But that said, like, I think, and you and I, Beth, were talking about this just the other day. I mean, and I think many of the people on this call right now, I mean, really, we've been having conversations about how to better include more designers and more elements of the development process, workshopping, everything. We've been talking about this since the mid-90s, at least, mm-hmm. um, and trying to find ways to have more people be in the room. And I think that we, um, many of us, and not to come to uh, the dreaded practicalities of conversations about budget, it's coming up as we're getting uh, later on um, but it is that thing it, I mean uh, I think we do still have um, traditional models of project development that that hinge on uh, a concept of a bunch of actors sitting around a table mm-hmm. and you know the potential of paying a designer you know a um, uh, hundred bucks or 150 bucks to come in and, and hang out at the table for four hours too um, and then mm-hmm. but it's still a process that, that for the large part and I'm not saying this is how all plays are developed because we know there are definitely outliers I guess what I'm saying is that they're still mostly just outliers that we we are continuing to have a, a, a process that is so often driven by uh, you know the the page at a table and mm-hmm. find ways to include m- more opportunities for design you know and not only in terms of being able to show images but also being able to have better resource playgrounds where uh, all the designers can, you know, this is this is my utopian vision in yeah. the world where we can have, you know, a, a spare black box at every theater that is not necessarily for an audience even to regularly sit in, but that is a place to, to really play with all of those elements because I think one of the things we've been really finding um, with all three of the projects we've spoken to today is also that the the whole experience of the of the show um, radically changes, and certainly with Donnelly um, in particular, is the opportunity for the play itself to um, to be constituted out of that collaboration. Really, is mm-hmm. what it became like 
to speak to that show a little tiny bit more for the people who don't know it, like when we talk about it being improvisatory, like essentially the the show was a, a, a one person show, one man show of Robert Donnelly telling his uh, life story in a way or reliving it in a way. And as, as the story is being told, what a lot of the projection is, and there were um, we had two projectors in the end that were that were um, both simultaneously projecting images that sometimes were complementary or contrasting or um, uh, in all kinds of different ways. But what they were, for the most part, were images that were within the psyche of Robert Donnelly rather than images of places that he was when he was talking. Like, you didn't see, like, here's the, here's the field he's standing in as he tells this story. It, it was much more so about his internal life. And in that way, Paul and I and Beth, all of us as artists, were focused on um, trying to understand the internal world of Robert Donnelly so that, um, you know, what was... Uh, uh, what w- would in traditional circles be an acting exercise also became the designer and the operator's um, exercise. Hi there. If you're finding this an interesting discussion and you want to continue to support my efforts to bring you conversations like this, as well as all the great interviews with Canadian theatre designers, please go now to support us on patreon.com. Go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate now. Thank you for your help. Because that was another important part of that show, too, was that not only was it designed by you, you operated it as well, Beth. Because mm-hmm. we, we realized pretty early on where this was going and that it was, uh, it was deeply important that I the operating because it was live it was live designing uh it was a second it was another performer yeah um, absolutely yeah and there were nights on stage where um there were images that i did not know as an actor in the show i did not know necessarily that those images were coming um and there were sometimes images that i had not seen before that would appear in the show and that I would be reacting to, but in the same way, there were there were uh, quite often um, <laughs> stories or even characters and elements that would appear in the show that Beth had never seen me do before. And um, there was, and also like because Beth was also responsible for the lighting design simultaneous to all of that, like there sure weren't any blocking that really repeated itself either. Right. Um, so it was a constant um, uh, uh, game in that way. And I think critically with that show, too, was the audience was in on it, which Heather kind of spoke to a moment ago. So that mm-hmm. the audience knew that this was being made up and in many ways that they were a part of the making up of it. And, and some nights more so than others. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So in, in terms of a dramaturgical model, though, it's very exciting because as we're talking about, you know, ways 
to create differently and and creating new and exciting experiences uh, for our audiences. That that level of improvisation and uh, and interplay between the the different uh, creators is very exciting. An exciting experience for the audience, especially as as they were also clearly um, overt participants in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I'm um, just gonna just get us. Sorry, I'm just gonna just get us to change gears here, uh, just for a moment, um, uh, because I want to do two things. Um, I want to open the floor to, to questions. We've been we've been having a great conversation here. So just before we do that, though, I just wondered, Beth. Um, we talked very briefly uh, in preparing for this about. Um, the question of how to start a relationship uh, with a new director and move through the process with a with a new director, because clearly what we've been experiencing today is this very rich relationship that the two of you have. What what would be some positive perspectives on developing a working practice uh, mm. in, in the newness of uh, this relationship? All right. Yes, it's a great question um, because I, it's funny because it's come up really frequently in the last probably eight months it's come up again and again uh, hearing encountering directors um, and this is across North America so this isn't just Canada um, but directors who say to me oh well I don't work with projection because I don't understand it and it's going to destroy my show and I just don't do it <laughs> so so that that development of that relationship is um is is a really interesting place to be because it's you know it's about sitting down and having conversations and 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 sort of getting into each other's heads as it always is as part of the design process but there's also a, a, a visual relationship that you that needs to be fostered in that and uh and learning how to speak to each other in in images and um and how to sort of how to interpret that and how to take that in and and see it as part of the life of your show um uh, i i also work a fair bit with peter hinton um mm. and our our last project uh was a show called silence at the grand um mm. and uh it's about mabel uh graham bell so alexander graham bell's wife and um and our our dialogue always starts with an exchange of deep thoughts, as Peter always has, about what the show is at its essence, like at its true core, and what he's looking to try to tell from that story. And then we very quickly move into visual, a visual dialogue. So we start sending images back and forth, and <clears throat> or we start referencing films or other plays that we've seen or places in the world that we've been um, and there's that sort of aesthetic uh, vocabulary that starts to develop, which then when it's, when it's coupled with a director starting to actually learn about 
how these things get to this stage, how they can move, how they, what things as the designer and, and the, the creator of the, of the visual world, what we're able to do. So it's, you know, if, if you were working in film, it would be knowing the difference between like a dolly shot and a crane shot. And there's some of the more technical, <clears throat> technical language or just knowing that, oh, I know that you could do that um, in animation and it's going to take you three months. So let's talk about this now. Um, it's that knowledge. It's building that knowledge and mm-hmm. figuring out how to talk about it, right? And figuring out what, yeah. what actual words to say. Um, so it's, yeah. Build, right. So building knowledge uh, and vocabulary together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's incredibly helpful. So then I'm just going to flip it for a moment, uh, if I could, uh, just to deal with one practical question, um, and then we'll I'll open the um, uh, open up to everyone for some burning questions, I suspect. So, Gil, looking at this, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, this is going to feel like an abrupt gear change, everybody, but looking at this from the artistic director's perspective, how do you begin to think about? like budgeting for this kind of relationship or budgeting for this kind of um, evolution and practice? So that's a really great question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, And what I would offer, first of all, um, is uh, how difficult it it is to get such a thing right. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And I think that just as a blanket statement across the country, um, you know, house to house to house, I think that we have been struggling um, uh, across PACT um, with, uh, you know, what we pay designers in the first place, period, full stop. Yeah. And that's part of a fuller conversation that I think is being uh, you know, people are working to rectify it now, and that's that's a critical thing. So it's just kind of a blanket thing yeah. on top of it. But uh-huh. I would also say that one of the critical pieces, again, looking at the blue sky of the utopian world there, that, yeah. we do need to be looking both in terms of what we are, how we are looking after the designers themselves who are producing this kind of uh, work for us, um, we also need to be thinking about it in terms of what, you know when when a set designer uh, shows up at your theater to do a set design, uh, they rely on uh, there being carpenters who are going to build this thing. They rely on a painter who's going to paint some of it. They rely on you know props people who are going to uh, build the props or go and shop with props. And they rely on being able to go through stock that's at the theater to be able to you know outfit some of the furniture or things like that. And we have um, uh, whole departments or multiple departments uh, whose function it is to render the designs of the set designer. The same is true of the costume designer. Um, and I think one of the challenges uh, for you know, theaters as we embrace some of this um, extraordinarily, uh, you know, uh, fruitful new possibility is to also start thinking about how do we create video departments or what does that look like or how can we actually Mm -hmm. improve on or expand our existing electrical department so that we're not just, you know, uh, uh, rolling in another designer who is going to, um, uh, you know, spend all of their time uh, actually executing the design that they're putting forward, that they do have some other supports in place. And and that is an incredible challenge and I don't know, I don't know what the answer to that is. It's, it's, It's massive. 
Yeah. Um, uh, and and I would say at the same time too, like <laughs> you know, designers are still going to work just as hard as they are already. Like we, we all <laughs> yeah. we all know we all know <clears throat> that designers who you know, in spite of having multiple departments rendering, um, you know, their their ideas into you know uh, structures that they still burn midnight oil to to uh, pull those off and continue to contribute actively throughout that process and it will be the same with with video but I think we do need to be thinking about it in that way or or where there could be shared resources too I mean maybe there could be other opportunities like that for other for theaters to collaborate together right i mean and then at the same time like in addition to the designers is is the incredible pace at which this equipment um, the technology itself is growing and changing and developing and and you know i talked i jokingly at the beginning of this conversation about our little uh, 4k projector that hung on chain <laughs> and, and you know, we're now on the other side of a massive renovation at Blythe, um, uh, four and a half million dollars later. And, you know, yep. we now do have um, uh, a pair of projectors that uh, are on a fixed bar and that can, you know, operate in tandem and a, and a pretty strong brain to run them. Mm -hmm. um, or, or to relay to them anyway. To relay. Yes, to relay. But, you know, it's it's still, um, we're always going to be pushing the envelope of it. Yeah, and I'll just, I just want to speak to that a little bit too. Um, those, having that department, I mean, I've worked everywhere from the teeny tiniest little theater to major, major, major festivals. And, it is rare and it is glorious when I get to walk into a theater where I know that people there know how to make my stuff go, like the technical side of these things, because that's the challenge with being a projection designer in Canada right now is that mm -hmm. you also need to know how to set it up and troubleshoot it and make it work. And so a huge amount of, of your own human resources beyond the midnight oil is, is put into uh, either educating the staff or just crawling under the stage and plugging it in your damn self. Um, so, so that, I mean, that would be the beginning of a, of a game changer. <laughs> and in considering like how we incorporate designers and how we think about that as we build our budgets and, and structure our seasons, like that's huge as is. And I would, I would regret not speaking to this. Um, the idea of playgrounds and the idea of being incorporated earlier, even if as much as it can be is a, is a seat at the table of a reading, I think you'd find most designers uh, love that. Um, we are so often the bastard children of theater that we're forgotten. And, and those, those inclusions, even if it is just come to the reading, come to the three-day workshop and be there and be present and absorb what's being uh, thought about uh, in, in this process is, is huge, is huge. I know for me, like 
I, like I can't even put a dollar number on it. It's great when I get some dollars to come and join everybody because everybody else is being paid. But um, I like I love it. It's and it changes the nature of my work, and it changes the nature of my interactions with the actors, with the stage management team, with the director, with the general managers. Like it, it's a those things are a game changer. Yeah. Okay. That's um, my rant. Okay. So just two things that I, um, I take away from, from that. Uh, one, it feels as though there's a, a conversation that we need to have about, um, or maybe this is just what I'm getting from it, it is that it, I feel like there's um, an opportunity for what I would call a tilling the soil conversation about exactly the kind of process that, that Blythe has gone through in terms of this is where we are and this is where we've ended up with regards to equipment. But just that for, for theaters who want to be developing um, this area more in their practice about, again, like what would be equipment, what would be uh, a, a, you know possibilities for creating infrastructure within a company environment that would support this kind of expansion and or shift in thinking. But but also the challenges of budgeting as well. Um, of actually, you know, we, we began with a very concrete conversation that I'm expanded uh, again because of the number of layers that are, are part of this, this conversation. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, uh, so I guess... <clears throat> I'm going to throw open the the conversation to people by starting with what may appear to be a negative question, but um, my question is, what are the obstacles that people feel or what are the opportunities that people feel currently exist from their own theater's perspective about integrating or expanding their video or projection content in, in their seasons or in their productions? Hi, everybody. <laughs> you want to start? <laughs> we're, we, can, we can put that on hold, but that's where it sort of feels like it can lead into. Um, I might add in there. Um, yeah, please. Uh, like, um, with the particular ecology of where Blythe Festival is um, uh, geographically. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there really is, um, uh, there's no other professional uh, theater companies within a um, you know, less than 45, 45 minute drive, um, and the uh, one thing that we uh, I have noticed is the there's a really active community theater scene um, in Goderich, Ontario, which is not very far from Blythe, and a lot of the um, uh, people who work there will come and see shows at Blythe and have begun to have conversations with me about, you know, how could we um, exactly. community theater exactly that. Yeah. working this stuff? Yeah. And, and I have actually, um, that, you know, that, that 4K projector I was joking about earlier, <laughs> like, you know, what we've essentially been telling the community theater, uh, you know, in our community is to say, uh, guys, if you want to use it, like, um, if you can cover the cost of a replacement bulb, then um, yeah. by all means have at it. Like, and that's what we've been doing. So, you know, quite cheaply, um, and that obviously it's not cutting edge technology, but for them, it's been allowing them to begin some experiments into that into that world. And we've been doing that for the last two years of, of letting them, and they've been putting those into some of their Christmas shows and stuff like that. And it's been mm-hmm. really interesting to see how it, it, you know, informs even like local community theater. 
Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Gil. So I guess uh, we'll just put my question to the side, we'll sidebar that, and um, we can come back. Are there, are there any burning questions? And, and, who's, and who's with us at the moment? This is Craig Alfredson from Vancouver. Can you guys hear me? Hi. Yeah. Yep. Hey, uh, I guess I can talk a little bit about the resources side of things. Um, I work freelance. I work uh, as a video designer as well as a technical director, so I can kind of talk about it on both sides of this. Um, I work for various companies, Vancouver Opera, Arts Club Theatre, Fire Hall Theatre, Shermanus Theatre over on the island. Uh, I would say my recommendation is, in terms of budgeting, is not to try and focus too much on capital purchases for things like projectors and systems. Um, and first of all, work on having the budgets for the shows, particularly the shows where you want to do these things, and making sure the designers are paid, because obviously they don't need to be paid more to be in this sort of central role than they would be if they're just coming in at the last minute. Um, in terms of the technology, as you say, your 4K projector was obsolete. The stuff that you just bought will probably be obsolete in a couple of years. Um, so to spend a lot of money, I mean, it has to happen at some point, but concentrate first on making sure you are paying the people and getting uh, on those specific projects. And there's always equipment that's available to be rented or borrowed, as you say, from other places. So that's sort of my my opinion on where that should be focus should be first on paying the people and then figuring out what equipment you need. Right. Thank you, Craig. Sure. That's a great point, Craig. And I would also say really pragmatically as a producer to like, um, go out and develop relationships with, uh, technology providers because, um, uh, a lot of them, um, are quite happy to also come on in sponsorship roles, which is something Blythe has been able to really benefit from over the last few years, um, from Horizon Solutions uh, in particular, um, uh, who are kind of our local giant and they've been able to to help us tremendously. And, you know, the, the bulk of their business, I mean, they do things like outfit full IT systems for (laughs) York University. Or they do like outfit, you know, um, uh, a lot of big industrial things. But the profile that we can offer them if they come on board as a sponsor of a show, um, you know, like Last Donnelly Standing is actually hugely advantageous for them to get the uh, 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 quite an elegant display of what extraordinary capabilities they're able to harness, um, and it allows us to do to have more reach. For sure. And I would say playing a little bit of devil's advocate too, um, without the tools, we can't do it. What? If the, you know, if the projectors aren't there, we can't do it. And if the projectors are there, we can do it. And we might not be able to do it to the degree that like... Uh, the Donna Summer show that just opened on Broadway with its 10 million pixels across the back of the stage. We can't do that. But if you've got a projector, and I, I used that 4K projector. I I used the hell of it. I sure did. And I used my 10-year-old projector in concert with that, uh, as I did on Donnelly, right? Like, Having the tools, obsolescence, yes. Uh, Right now, I am working with augmented reality and virtual reality. I'm working with stuff that's literally coming out of the manufacturer and coming here to the university. 
it, it is obsolete. Everything is obsolete so quickly or so called obsolescence. If it works, if it turns on, if it's cutting through your stage light or you have a designer who knows how to do that, you have the tool, which means you yes. can keep exploring it. If you don't have the tool, like the, the, the community theaters in Goderich, if you don't have the tool, you can't explore it and start to develop that vocabulary with your artists, with your company members, with your audiences. like. I, I I get asked it probably three times a week. Which projector should I buy, and which one is going to last forever? And n- nothing's going to last forever. There's always going to be something sexier out there. There's no question. But if it turns on and it still looks good, it, you're you're okay. You don't have to keep up with the Joneses either. You can't. We can't. Canadian theater. We can't. It's impossible. Right. right. So, okay. And by okay. Joneses, you mean the Donna Summers of the I mean the Donna Summers. I mean the Desmond. I'm, I'm trying to keep Jones. up with Justin Timberlake myself. That's what I'm trying to keep up with. Can't keep up with the Justin and Donna's. <laughs> right? I guess, I guess what right. my point was, though, that the, the technology exists out there. As you say, you can yeah. borrow, you know, you're renting out or lending out your projector to other companies. In Vancouver, there's, you know, various larger companies, there's lots of AV suppliers. Um, I guess my point is that, you know, unless you have the budget to pay the designers to do the design that they have, putting in a big capital purchase for a big projection system isn't necessarily going to be, that's not where we need to start. We need to start by having these projects that we want to do these things, having the budgets that allow us to pay the people to do these things, and then making sure that we have the equipment is next on the list, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's always nice to have the gear. I just feel like there is a lot of gear around and we can start with the gear that we have mm-hmm. and then right. work on, on updating it to get it. Better. Right. It, yeah. It's, it's artists here. I, I, I think your point is so uh, wise and, um, you know, having, had a few experiences uh, in the last few years, and, and we're a we're a small budget company, um, but we do a lot of new work where we have worked in a new process where the designer has been more of a primary collaborator than tra- our traditional models. Um, we've we've learned a lot very quickly about. Um, both how to deal with that on the labor negotiation side um, and, and an appropriate compensation, how to appropriately compensate those designers. You know, uh, you can say to them, well, can you come in for four half days this week? And it's like whatever the, you know, the, the old, um, it's like 50 bucks for a half day or whatever. And you, you know, you can't, you, whatever, you know, the, everything's modeled after equity and those scales. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and as Gil said, the old model of people sitting around a table dealing with one creator's work, which is the playwright. We're just here to like, you know, lift the words off the page and people have a listen. Well, that's not what we're asking designers to do in workshops anymore. And so, you know, you, 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 if you want more kids in the playground, you, you mm-hmm. absolutely have to put that money in. You have to kind of like, you know, put, put money everywhere, <laughs> everywhere you can as you learn how it's going to affect your, your, your budgets differently to yeah. anticipate and, and, to, and to do it with intentionality, you know, uh, uh, intentionality and patience um, because you're, you're cracking open all of the models of 
hiring and, and the expectations too, you know, like, well, I really want the designer around all, lots and lots and lots and lots. Um, well, what is that, you know, what is, what is that going to mean? You can't just sign the mm-hmm. you know, ADC contract as it stands and think that that includes everything. Yeah. I know that seems obvious, but it's, it, um, um, and, and, and sometimes I think too, if you're doing these things for the first time, you have to know it's going to take longer, allow for that and to, um, give it this time and space. And that might mean doing less in some other area or, you know, like I love that saying, do less well. And, yeah. and when we're o- opening up our practices and changing them in our organizations, however big or small, you know, again, the intentionality is, is really key. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to jump in here. I, I have to go back into rehearsal now. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Heather. You're not um, the only one. The other people have gone. Yeah, I think we've had we, one. Uh, so, but I, we so have I a, just, still have. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. If I could, if I could return to the time and space um, scene that you just raised there, artists, mm-hmm. because we originally talked about the possibility of this extending into two separate sessions, mm-hmm. because of the richness of the conversation and the like, the level of exploration that's going on. And I wonder if I could um, just check in with who's here right now and whether we would like to to do that. I would absolutely love to do another session. Okay, that's great. Okay, that's that, yeah. I I would love to. Gil and Beth, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm I'm happy to talk about this forever. Yeah. <laughs> sure, absolutely. I mean, if people feel that it's fruitful and and useful, yeah. then I, I mean, I'm I'm happy to okay. uh, continue it. Yeah, yes, I this think is uh, Richie from uh, Ship's Company, and for sure, this has been highly informative, and I'm totally into it. Okay, super. Um, Renata, I'd I'd be really interested in it as well. Okay. Do we have, so Beth, you're, I'm sorry, Heather, you're going to run. I am um, going to run, Do we yeah. technically have still another 10 minutes for, for any more questions? We do. Maybe who haven't had a chance. Is that right, Boomer? Yeah, right. that's good. That works for me. Yeah? Great. Good. Okay. okay. So I, I feel... I feel like I'm leaving the dinner party far too early. <laughs> oh, we made some beautiful dishes. <laughs> we'll bring oh, you we'll a doggy bag. Thank yeah. you, Heather. Okay, great. So I look forward to hearing how this wraps up, and then I look forward to part two. Indeed. Great. We'll talk Thanks for everybody. Soon. Okay, take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, it's artists. I'll just ask uh, if anybody who hasn't had a chance to, um, offer suggestions or ask questions um, uh, in whatever form. This is your time to do so. Um, I wouldn't mind jumping in. It's Renata yeah. again. Um, oh. I'm from Newfoundland. <laughs> um, currently calling from Cornerbrook. Uh, I work with a, a number of different companies in Newfoundland. RCA is the main one I work with in St. John's. And I'm, um, I'm teaching at Granville um, on, in the theater department. So I, I cross over a lot in between uh, the companies, it crosses into my own research at the university. And I think that might be a key element here of where the money can come from. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work I've managed to do with the companies that has been sort of new and innovative and or collective in some way, shape or form has been, um, I've managed to kind of turn my research funding towards it. Um, but that's been very purposeful. And, and, um, it wasn't just sitting there. I had to get kind of a little inventive about it. And part of that is 
is I um, I work in interdisciplinary research. So, for example, mm. um, I'm involved with the space industry, and I um, I'm taking science courses and math and physics courses as well as being a designer and teaching in fine arts. So that allows me to be able to have a conversation with scientists in a way that I think a lot of other artists might have difficulty. Um, and I do end up borrowing equipment from the sciences and I, I find ways of dipping into their resources as well in that way. So I think part of the onus, if we want to expand as artists, is that we need to really expand, and that means getting out of your comfort zone. And I think for a lot of artists, um, that involves, you know, being able to communicate in another manner. And the big manner in terms of digital environment is technology, and technology is at its basis science. Mm -hmm. I think artists need to get a little more comfortable and a little more willing to understand science. Yes, and I I exist in the same world. My I'm doing an interdisciplinary degree with a wing of computer science out here in Calgary, and um, it's absolutely true. Um, I will actually be coming to the PACT conference uh, with the support of that department and bringing a whole bunch of technology for people to look oh, at. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Um, so it's absolutely, and I'm also looking at crafting both a METAX grant and a SHRC application to foster work in the theater. Um, and it's absolutely true. There, There is a huge uh, amount of crossover that can happen there, both the interdisciplinary world into the theater world. And um, I know the computer scientists that I'm working with um, are all both like <clears throat> completely mystified by theater mm -hmm. um, yep. and super <laughs> excited about it because they, they don't think this way. And so the, the questions that I'm asking them are questions one else is asking them and that's mm. proving to be extremely fruitful in terms of yeah. pushing what I'm doing and pushing what they're doing and is a really rich fertile ground I think for us to 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 kill um so yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I agree with everything you're saying I just think um uh, yeah, it is. You, you you do come across these really interesting scenarios where you know I'm trying to explain um, a particular problem I might be having in the theater and and or a challenge we're trying to solve. And and it's really it's about communication. It's about partly negotiation with other departments and things like that. But it's also um, just a, just an understanding, like finding a way to develop an understanding, so that when I am communicating with with these other departments or or, or scientists around the world, um, how do I speak their language so that it just doesn't come out? I guess I guess they want some sort of end game. They want some sort of usual product or results that's tangible. And we often live in this <laughs> world of intangibles, and so it's finding ways around that. Mm -hmm. Yes, which dovetails to what Gil was talking about in terms of developing relationships with actual corporations and people sure. that can help. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's really important too. I mean, the flip side of that also in, in the academic world, which which uh, I mean, I've also 
on my time. <laughs> um, uh, but I would say that the other piece that's important there is, 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 the, is the reverse. I think it really is also critical for artists who are in these institutions to be um, reminding the uh, academic world about the value of the intangible and about the value of the ephemeral. And there mm-hmm. are things that cannot be measured, and that does not mean they do not have value. That the the you know the the erosion of the humanities in the academic world has has, has been uh, catastrophic, really, truly. And finding ways to um, yes to communicate with those um, uh, scientists is essential, and finding ways to um, to to bring them uh, along or to ingratiate yourself to them is really valuable. It's also important that we we begin to bring them back towards the the value of what we do too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it can be a real default in the academic world mm-hmm. to, to, and, yeah. to the quantifiable research. And uh, there, there's a lot that simply can't be quantified. Sometimes even within our, within our own industry, because we're, we're so battered sometimes, we're so, we're so, we're so um, broken down and we've adopted the language of, you know, mm-hmm. well, sure with the value and, and uh, you know, what are your outcomes and how are you going to blah, blah, you know. Well, that, and this that, is, you're deliverable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. deliverables, yeah. Which is really interesting because a lot of the experience I'm having is that the value of, of the things that are way out there are intangible or ephemeral are being more embraced by the technology people, um, which is a really, which becomes actually a really interesting feedback loop yeah. because then I get to go from that side of the campus and bring all of that excitement and and bring that into the theater world and. Um, it's, yeah, that's proving to be really, really interesting. Is that, is that because the, the, the technology is, is so, so magical now? Like, is, it, is it because it's more cre- creative? I mean, I, I'm not, maybe I'm saying I it's think, crazy. I don't know. No, 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 it's not crazy. I think what it is is that it is inherently creative, this, this augmented yeah. reality stuff and this virtual reality stuff, which is mm-hmm. still in super rudimentary form is inherently creative and it's the people who are thinking about it creatively um, being able to turn to the coders and say this is this is what I want to do with it this is how I want to push and pull and stretch it and the coders going oh my god I would never have thought of that yeah let's go try it um, yeah. It's that, so yes, I think too, and that's part of what I'm looking at here, trying to figure out what impact does this all have on on us as theater makers. But yeah, I think because it is so, or the potential for it to be super creative is is there. So those who are open to it, when they see that crack appear there, they're all over it. Just, I just had one other comment to, uh, to make about, and it's not so much about the technology of, of um, uh, digital design and, and that, but what's so inspiring about your, your, your conversation, Beth and Gil, about um, your, your sort of new model of, of collaborating of, of, of that creative team 
um, the designer being more of a primary creator, um, is even with a, sh- a show we just did recently where um, there was a, a choreographer who worked for a year and a half with us on a show, um, and, and we had to figure that out. Well, what, is, what does that mean? She's actually not just a choreographer. She's not setting steps. This isn't the production of Anything Goes. It's actually, she's actually developing a vocabulary for, for a group of movement vocabulary for a group of people. So we had to design a, 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 both, you know, a, a budget and a, and a, and a, a language uh, and a process to include that generally, uh, usually outside creator or, or ancillary creator to being a primary creator. And, mm-hmm. and even though there was no, other than incredible lighting by Itai Rodell, there was, there were, and sound, there was no projection. There was nothing. It was a very stripped down, beautiful raw piece. But that, that designer, because she really was a designer, not just a choreographer, she was a primary, primary uh, creator of this project. So, so it's, I, I, I think that um, time for designers is is now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that was, and not to speak for the festival, but I think that was part of why on Lombardo I was a digital dramaturg, right? It's about figuring out, too, how, how do we... How do we acknowledge these things? How do we and how do we make them known? And how do we get our audiences to for those who read the program um, yes. to actually sort of clue in and go, oh, there's something a little bit different right. going on here. That's a new term, or yeah. um, you know, well, yes, because the audience is having a different kind of experience. So I think that could really be an interesting part of our another conversation because mm-hmm. they're, they're watching a show quite differently. Like the rules of engagement can even be quite different. Yeah. No? Yeah. And it was really cool then to be, to be integrated into the, into the Donnelly piece and, yeah. you know, implies you, you are part of the community, right? You're there. Yeah. People know that you're not from there. And so they yeah. want to talk to you and, and I like to participate in all the community things that mm-hmm. happens. And so there were, many, many conversations with people who had come to see the show or who had heard about the show. And this is both Donnelly and all the shows that I've done, like the conversations that I've had with the audience and what they have taken from it and what they understand and what they understood more after, after, after talking to me or after seeing the show, like was, was truly extraordinary. People people are watching and it has an impact. And so it's a yeah it's a bit of a holistic change to to the approach of things for sure sure um okay well i guess we should we should wind up um i thank you both so very much um for your 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 preparation and your generosity and just for for doing all this beautiful work um and uh sharing it with us and Beth we're going to see you at the conference right mm-hmm. yes indeed That's fantastic and Gil you'll be there I will be there excellent um, and I'll um, we'll have a, a little uh, chat Heather and, and Boomer and I and, and, the, and the committee um, and, and then just maybe we'll feed back with you guys uh, uh, as, as soon as we can and, and see what, where this might go next but, great uh, it was fantastic 
Thank you, and thank you for for doing this. I think it's really important that we talk about our practice. Yeah, yeah it's great. Really, it's yeah. fantastic. Um, and and uh, um, that's Heather Davies for you. She's just <laughs> right on it. Well, and I think and fascinating. I mean, I'm hugely grateful to everybody. I also find it fascinating that um, we are able to have a pretty robust and engaging. Um, phone conversation about digital video design. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, there, I, and there were many moments where I was like, I just want to show everybody what we're talking about. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It'll, we'll have to figure something out. Yeah. Um, true. yeah. And to that, if there's whoever's left on the phone call, I'm open to receiving emails or whatever. If there's more that you want to talk about offline, so. Oh, fantastic! So people can yeah. find you, or they can find you through um, through through Pact or through Boomer. Yeah, or, yeah. Or through the I'm, interwebs. I'm findable on the interwebs. Yep. Okay, great. Well, I uh, have a great day, everybody, and um, till part two. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now, folks. Thanks very much. That was Beth Cates and Gil Garrett speaking with Heather Davies and other PACT members about digital dramaturgy. Next time, another Bellows podcast on using email to communicate effectively. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the Title Block CA and on Facebook.com slash the Title Block Podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the Title Block at gmail.com. Now don't forget that if you like the show, support us on patreon.com. I'm Michael Cruz and I'll see you next time on the Title Block. <laughs>